นะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะปุถังธรรมังสังขังนมัสสามิSo this is the uh, uh, last parts of the uh, interview of l u m p o s o m a t o with Roger Huila, who was a uh, an American uh, ordained in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And this uh, interview took place at Insight Meditation Society in uh, May of 1981. And um, there's been a, a number of discussions about skillful use of Religious form and tradition, and the practice of the Vinaya, and then the last part of this um, this section, which is part five, then uh, uh, Roger goes on to uh, uh, ask about the um, uh, say the relationship to the precepts and how they might become a neurotic discipline. So Lumpur has begun in this section by comparing learning the um, the discipline to practicing um, on a piano, so that you learn uh, over many many hours, doing your scales and uh, training the the hands uh, fingers where to go to to make the notes, and then that's how you uh, you develop the skills. So that uh, once you've really learned all the rules and and the procedures and practices. Then it becomes something that's automatic. You can use those without needing to, to think about it. So then uh, Lumpur carries on in his explanation about the Vinaya training. Many people criticize the rules concerning women. Why can't monks touch women? "Quote unquote." Why can't monks be alone in a room with a woman? Why can't I have a woman up here and talk to her alone in a private interview? What is it about women? Was the Buddha a male chauvinist pig? Questions like this often come up. It's a matter of establishing a proper relationship so that the Dhamma can be taught. So, also the uh, Insight Meditation Society was a, a Buddhist retreat center, um, but the uh, the majority of teachers there were lay teachers. They would have had, uh, I think, Ajahn Chah had taught there in 1979. They would have had. Teachers like uh, Mahasi Sayad or Upandita also teaching there in the past, but the um, uh, the structure of uh, say the monastic rules and the the adherence to those, uh, say particularly for having a, an interview with a woman retreatant, why the the uh, teaching Ajahn or the Sayad or would always have to have a another monk or a male person sitting in. Uh, To um, to be accompanying, these are the kind of questions that were were coming up, and also why physical contact between uh, the the monks who were visiting and lay women uh, also was forbidden. They couldn't shake hands or anything of that nature. Questions like this often come up. It's a matter of establishing a proper relationship so that the dhamma can be taught. Many people have forgotten how nature works. The female attracts the male, and vice versa. It's a natural condition. Also, if I have a woman in my room, even though I think I don't have a problem with lust anymore, unquote, quote unquote, how would that look to others? If Bhikkhu Sujito saw a woman walking out of my room, well, it would look bad. These are the ways of protecting women, of keeping their reputation from being gossiped about. Moreover, women often fall in love with teachers and figures of authority. Women have tremendous power to draw monks who are still very attracted to women, especially if the women are discussing their own personal problems. One can easily get caught uh, emotionally caught up in that. So these are um, uh, very uh, important considerations in terms of our Vinaya discipline, and this is something that's uh, unusual to us as Westerners coming into 
this training and practice, but as you live with it, and it's similar for the for the nuns community. If the if a, a male wants to talk to one of the senior nuns, and they they should have a a companion, a female companion sitting in. So that process of chaperoning uh, is a way of keeping the the dialogue on a, a level of uh, of dhamma, and uh, is a way of say preventing things drifting into sort of personal and uh, emotionally charged ways of making making contact even if it's just in in conversation so it's a a, a a way of living and arranging things that's very much for the protection of of both parties of all parties really and it's interesting since this time in the early 80s uh, what's developed in um, doctors' offices, in uh, university campuses, and so on. Uh, it's more and more the case that um, people who are in authority or people who have positions of power, they will uh, say make sure that they're in in a chaperoned situation, uh, uh, one in uh, various ways according to their own disciplines, for exactly the same purposes. So that there's a a, a protection, there's a a um, say a, a way that the situation is uh, sustained in a skillful form rather than uh, being more uh, say set up in a way that can easily drift towards a personal uh, bonding um, the uh, i remember in one of the i don't know if it's still in there but in the um, earlier edition of the buddhist monastic code when ajahn tanisro was talking about this um, he uh, 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 and why, even if there might be a completely innocent dialogue between a, a, a monk and a laywoman, or between a, a nun and a layman, or between a, a nun and a monk, that you wouldn't have a conversation like that in a in a secluded situation um, uh, where no one can can listen in, or that it's in a private, secluded place. And uh, he he quotes uh, from uh, the the standard from sort of the classical. Uh, Roman world where Caesar's wife isn't just uh, doesn't just have to be pure; she has to be seen to be pure. So, if you're the, I'll say it was Calpurnia was Julius Caesar's wife. So that uh, you're not just having to maintain that standard internally, but you're also conscious of how things look and how they appear from from the outside. And so, even in the, the Buddha's time, uh, one the, this particular rule about um, having uh, uh, say proper chaperoning or not being alone together, uh, a monk and uh, uh, a woman in a secluded place. It was established because of an arahant, Venerable Anuruddha, um, uh, who was you know, blameless in his his conduct, completely you know, with a mind, a heart, completely free of greed, hatred, and delusion. Um, but it was because of Anuruddha staying up through the night, giving dhamma teachings to uh, a woman alone in a secluded place. I remember the rule correctly. Probably somebody can remember which particular it is. No. Anyway, one of them. <laughs> Forty something, I think. That uh, Venerable Anuruddha, who was an arahant, it was because of him. Um, even though his conduct was completely blameless, and it, and it was a, a very innocent. Uh, conversation, teaching Dhamma for a, a long time, but then it didn't look good. That you know that um, the two of them secluded in a in a a, a chamber inside a um, a rooming house uh, for for many hours, and so the Buddha said, you know, this shouldn't be done. You should establish your conduct such a way that you don't have a conversation together uh, with a. a for the for the monks, were together with the woman in a secluded place, and similarly, the comparable rules for for the nuns community that they're not engaging in um, uh, in private conversations in a in a in a in a, in a secluded place. It's um, it's a a, a way of uh, say establishing mindfulness, and and also that um, the uh, uh, the experience has shown that. If you if you don't do that, if, you, if this rule is not followed, then it very easily gets uh, um, gets into difficult situations. And uh, to, on uh, one or two occasions, where um, where just for for Lumpur Sumato, when the, the attendant monk had to step out of the room for a, a few minutes just to go and organize a cup of tea or something, then it, uh, then Lumpur Sumato was accused of having said something or done something inappropriate while the other monk was out of the room, which 
he was completely innocent of, but the person took it upon themselves to make that kind of accusation without having another witness there, then it was just Lumpur Sumato being accused of something and he didn't have any other way of of backing up um, his perspective on it. And so he was, I would underscore that, he was completely blameless. He didn't say anything or do anything. But this uh, uh, this uh, person in, uh, in one or two situations that I know of, they they made that kind of accusation uh, for for whatever reason. So that it's a, um, uh, it is an important dynamic. It's not just something that is, uh, say, lingering over from ancient times, but it, it's something that is very relevant. And as I was saying, it's it's interesting that now, like in uh, in the situation of like a university lecturer, university professors, psychologists, therapists, and in, in medical situations, often it's required that there's a, a chaperoning presence there in, in order to make sure things maintain a, 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 a kept on a level of propriety. So to carry on, yeah. the Buddha didn't say that a monk cannot teach women. He said that a monk should establish a relationship in which teaching can be given. I found this very helpful in training the monks at Chithurst. There are no scandals or problems there. When women, when women come, they know the conditions for instruction and accept them. Therefore, the teaching of the Dhamma can be given without emotional involvement and all kinds of gossip-related problems. Many bhikkhus in England, both Thai and Western, have lost their reputation due to their laxity with regard to women. When I came to England, I also thought it would be a problem. I felt that Western women were going to hate and resent the regulations, but they don't. When they understand them, they respect them very much. Our four nuns at Chithurst, so it was <laughs> Ajahn Chandasiri being one of those, uh, I guess this must have also been before Sister Chintamani took the precepts, if there was only four of you. Yeah. Oh. So, anyway, so Ajahn Chandasiri was one of those four, Sister Rochana. Sister Sundara, Sister Chandasiri, and Sister Tanisra were the, uh, the four uh, foundation, foundational group. They were the members of the foundational group of the nuns community. Our four nuns at Chithurst are more meticulous than we are. Please take note. <laughs> they are very careful about the veneer because they really want to observe it correctly. In our monastic community, there is no jealousy about women. Situation where jealousy arises are traditional are a traditional world problem. Men fighting over women is a natural condition too. This kind of training avoids those difficulties. Roger Wheeler makes the comment, You you teach everyone equally, don't you? And Paul replies, Yes. At Chithurst, the nuns are very much a part of the monastic community. They come to all the daily activities and have the same training. So any comments or questions on that? Anything, Ajahn Chandasiri, you'd like to to uh, add in on that? It's all uh, 40 years ago, it's hard to remember the the, uh, the details of those days. But uh, Any questions, comments? Yes, there's a tender window. I was wondering about the, the rules you just mentioned about having a chaperone. How did you do in the early days with telephone, for instance? Like if you, telephone, uh, like when people make, or monks make, or nuns make calls to the opposite sex, was there issues around it or discussions? Because now I picture more like, you know, you have these calls of like Zoom calls or FaceTime calls, or they can be quite private, right, in some yes, ways. Yeah. And that's more, I guess, let's say, unquote, intimate, but uh, I would say the, the issue must have arisen as well when people had calls made, no? Have you heard of a landline? What? <laughs> <laughs> it's where you, your yes. telephone was actually attached to the earth with a, with a wire. With a rotary phone. A rotary phone. The so modern also, ones, no, you had you buttons you could push. <laughs> no, no, I was just wondering, I'm, like, I'm phones. Serious. Like, no. I'm serious as well. Like, the landline, like, when you had to make a call in... Chitter's days, were, was there extra rules around it or anyone could, I mean, have a call without, you know, uh, opposite sex? Um, 
the the phone was in the office at Chidhurst, and um, the um, it it wouldn't happen that often, as far as I'm aware. Um, the uh, uh, because the the it was usually um, uh, like a, a junior person was looking after the office duties in Anagarika or in Anagarika, were often the person looking after the offices because of the um, taking care of the petty cash and so on, and so often it wouldn't be a, a monk, let alone an ajahn, who was picking up the phone. Um, if somebody called or sent a message saying, you know, I, I would like to have a phone convers conversation with Ajahn Sumedho. And in those days, the, the teacher really was only Lumpur Sumedho. He was the only Ajahn. He, like when you use the word Ajahn, it only referred to one person. And so, and he really didn't like the phone. <laughs> so if somebody said, I have to talk to Ajahn Sumedho on the phone, they'd really have to work for it to get him to agree to go to the phone and... And then, and if it was a situation where it was a, a a woman who wanted to talk with him, he might have a monk sitting together with him in the room. He couldn't hear what was being said at the other end, but but it was very very rare. Um, it, it did happen from from time to time, and that um, the uh, but if uh, if a conversation did occur that was uh, uh, sort of going in an unskillful direction. Um, then the the the, uh, the monk, or I'm, I'm not sure if it happened at all with the with you and the Anagari cars in the early days, but uh, I think you'd, you'd terminate the call very quickly. Or I remember one one time there was a actually she ended up joining the community, Sister Upala, when she was Beth Tregaskis. Uh, the the telephone rang during the morning meeting, the, the breakfast time meeting, and I, and uh, I was a junior monk, so I thought went out and, and picked up the phone in the office. And she had this extremely proper sort of posh English accent. And um, she uh, uh, and we didn't realize the extent to which she had some mental difficulties. But um, uh, she, uh, she said, uh, thank you, thank you so much for, um, for dedicating the, the chanting for me um, and for your visit yesterday. I thought, visit? Who visited? Did, did, did the Ajahn go to see Beth yesterday? He said, but I'm terribly sorry, but you seem to have left one of your, one of your Anagarikas behind. Um, so, so I'm not kidding. And so uh, first of all, I was sort of you know, listening carefully and, and taking notes. Okay, it's Beth Tregaskis. And then we left one of our Anagarikas behind. I think. Well, I, I think if... Uh, they're all here this morning, Beth. Um, you know... Uh, uh, and uh, you know, that, and we we're pretty sure we haven't left anyone. Said, well, no, I'm, it's it's without a doubt you've left one of them behind. And so then I began to realize, oh, this person really has got some some psychological difficulties. And so then, uh, you know, I, I carried on with the phone call and said, well, I'll, I'll pass it on to the Ajahn and let him know. And uh, but I'm, I can assure you that we haven't lost any Anagari because they're all here and. Uh, so please, uh, please rest assured that nothing is nothing is out of order, and uh, you know, the, I'll, I'll let the Ajahn know. And she was quite happy for Ajahn Sumedho to be informed. So, uh, yeah, in a, a situation like that, a, a phone call that's sort of unusual or, or a bit sort of strangely charged in various ways, then you would just relay that to a senior person and say, "Well, this this conversation just happened, so this uh, we should be." alert if this person calls or if they get in touch that there's there's um there's some difficulties there or some challenges or things are a bit out of balance with respect to that person nowadays it's 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 a, a um a whole different kettle of fish as they say because you've got all these different ways that you can communicate cell phones are in in abundance all around the, the planet so you can have extremely uh, private conversations very easily and so it is a bit more of an issue in Thailand. Um, I don't know if I don't know if Nokia is still uh, predominant there, but they had an expression called Nokia death for monks, like death by Nokia. And and what would happen uh, would be that um, a certain devoted layperson would give a monk a phone, so then she would have his phone number, and then would there would be a development of a relationship, and often you know starting off in a very innocent way, but then. Being available and giving you know, giving advice over and over and over, and then fairly uh, uh, fairly soon, then the monk would find themselves leaving the monastery. 
So that it became an expression in Thailand, Nokia de death by Nokia or Nokia death. But I think they've moved on to Samsung and uh, <laughs> an iPhone by now. But uh, it, it, it is an issue, uh, and I think it's it's something to be very attentive to. So um, uh, personally, I try to avoid giving uh, Dhamma teachings over the phone um, if I if I can, and uh, if something is set up with uh, uh, a laywoman, if she wants to talk, then I would. And try and set it up so that uh, you know, her, her partner is there as well, or or uh, it's uh, it, it, uh, arranging it to. Uh, and once in a while, I might actually have another monk at my end to, to sit in and be there if I was thought oh, I'm not sure where you know, where this what this person's motivation is, or whether this is going to be um, uh, able to be sort of kept on a on a skillful level, but. Uh, uh, usually, you just try to to uh, avoid having conversations in that way because also once you've made a connection, then people have got your number and they they can re they can uh, contact you again very very easily. So that uh, yeah, I think you because when when you when you make contact with people over the phone or through Skype or FaceTime or Zoom or whatever, then you set a precedent, and once you've done it once, then it's easy to for it to be done again. And so that. Uh, um, it's a, it is an area to be to be cautious in, I would say. Yeah, could you use the microphone, Ajahn? Yeah, well, we were always encouraged to do what we used to do was if if it was a man trying to speak on Dharma with us, we would refer them to one of the monks and just really encourage them to, to speak to a member of the male community rather than ourselves. Yes. And that felt like a good solution. And similarly, you know, I assume that and I would like to think that if there was a woman needing special counsel, that she could be referred to one of us. Yeah, and that's a, that's a, the ideal. These austere people to, to to somebody of their own their own gender, and but sometimes they say, "But I want to talk to you." I know. Often they're not so interested <laughs> when you suggest that. Yeah. She doesn't understand. It's got to be you, Ajahn. Yes, yeah. That's right. And so uh, then then you just have to tread cautiously and. Because you want to be respectful of people's needs and wishes, and you don't want to be sort of making presumptions. But also, like like with the Vinaya rules, uh, you don't set up a situation that then can easily become problematic. You you arrange it so that it 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 there's a few hurdles that have to be climbed over before it would get into any, being anything unskillful or inappropriate. Okay. Yes, Anagarika Evgenia. Slightly different topic. Uh, in the beginning, there was about uh, playing piano and learning how to play piano, and then you can play freely, so it's kind of in your blood. But I'm curious, um, monastics who was in training for a long time, so that it became their nature, when they went back to lay life, um, was it... Like, how was it, like, probably they changed a lot? And then to uh, live in daily situation, was there any problem for them to adapt if, if they had to <laughs> go back for any reason? With, with this completely different mindset, like, completely different from other people around? Ah, uh, yes, a good question. Um, it depends very much on the individual. And for some people, it was it's really been really tough. It took them it's quite a few years. It depends a bit on how long you've been in the monastery. I've never disrobed, so I can't speak from personal experience. But I've been around quite a number of ex-monastics, and for for some, it was maybe a, you know, like a four or five year transition period. Really, just before finding their feet. Yeah, you know, someone who's been in the monastery for say twenty years or so. It's it's. Yeah, and perhaps the the majority of their adult life, so that then to being a layperson is is tricky. Uh, it's also you get these these kind of funny incidents where um, some uh, one former monk um, uh, was describing how you know, waking up early in the morning in bed with his girlfriend and then suddenly realizing, where's my sangati? I think, wait a minute, I'm in bed with I'm in bed with my partner. I, I don't need my sangati, you know, like because of, we have a rule about not being separated from your robes. 
overnight. You've got to have your robes with you at dawn. And so it, there's this kind of reflex, a monastic reflex of like, where are my robes? And they, oh, but, uh, right. Right, right. Okay, it's not a problem. So. <laughs> and, uh, or there's... Um, Another, another former monk said that when, when he would get anxious, he would reach for his robe to kind of hitch his robe onto his shoulder because that had become a kind of anxious reflex when you're sort of not quite sure of a situation, not quite knowing what to do with your hands. You'd sort of reach for your robe and hoik your robe up. It's not the same for the sisters because you have your, your robes in a different, a different form. But for, for us as monks, when you've got your, your jiwan on, it's rolled up over the shoulder and there's always this sort of tendency for it to drop off and so even as a layman for years he would find himself reaching for his for the 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 loofah gourd of his of his robe to as a sort of anxious reflex and think, i haven't got my g1 on <laughs> i'm in jeans and a t-shirt but so th those kind of um reflexes carry on uh, but it, it is very individual uh, for some people there they would be in the robes for you know five or ten years and then step out of it and then within a few weeks they're just quite sort of comfortably settled into a whole different pattern others like i say you know they might be you know, four or five years before they really find their find their feet in, in the lay world so it's it's a very uh, individual thing and it also depends a bit on what the attitude has been to the monastic form and the and the training um and so that uh, for some people going into lay life that then they are able to maintain a very high standard of of the of sila and to you know carry on with their spiritual practice other people um when when they leave the 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 uh, the form had really been holding them together quite a lot so that as soon as they leave the monastery they start drinking or get into all kinds of complicated relationships and and they they had not used the form to develop a lot of internal um, sort of cohesion. Like they weren't able to develop a self-reliance, uh, and that the the, uh, the the form was very much something that was holding them together. So the the, the monk who um, took uh, Lumpo Sumato to to Wabapong originally Tan Somai, uh, he, he was uh, uh, often Lumpo has said how that was very much the case for him was that. As a monk, he was very, very strict and very, uh, very proper. But uh, once he left the, the monastery, then he he developed a really serious drinking problem, and so he uh, Lumpur Cha was was very compassionate and, and helped him out a, a lot. But um, the the way that he'd held the monastic training was was very much sort of kind of depended upon the the rules to to uh, say. Uh, help him to behave skillfully and without the structure of the of the vinya then he didn't have a lot of internal strength so it, it's very individual and, and i'm not sort of revealing any secrets i mean it's, a, it's something that's a, it's very well known about tan somai and, and lumpur has mentioned that in many many teachings and also also how uh, in particular ajahn chah said it doesn't matter how much of a mess samai makes of his life he's the one who brought you here so you should always be respectful towards him just like uh, venerable sariputta would always bow to wherever venerable asaji was uh, at the uh, i think at the end of the day before he he laid down to rest at night because venerable asaji was the one who brought sariputta to to meet the buddha so that, uh, as, as I remember the the story, where uh, Venerable Sariputta would would reflect, now where where is Venerable Asaji at the moment? And he would um, uh, bow down in the direction of, of Venerable Asaji out of a sense of gratitude. Well, he was the one who brought me to the Master. So uh, I, I always have that uh, connection, that, that gratitude. And Lumpur Chao said the same thing. You know, you should never forget Tan Somai. He's the one who brought you here. Doesn't matter how drunk he gets or how much of a mess of his life. It doesn't matter. He, you have that that connection with him. You should always be available for him. And uh, because you 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 being here, that's the one absolutely good thing that he's done with his life, and he, no one can take that away. And so it's good for you to remember that and to remind him of that. And so that. Um, so if uh, somebody leaves and then their, their life gets really sort of tangled and messy, uh, th there is still that connection. 
And, uh, and I feel that's also important because people can get into states of great despair uh, and, and feel really lost. But that connection that they have with the Sangha and the, the, the way that it uh, impacted their, their life and what they contributed to the Sangha while they were in the community, that, that those, uh, those things, uh, it's good to recollect those, to, to not forget that because that is a, a, uh, can be a genuine support. That's something that is of genuine value. Okay, so uh, go on to the last part. This is part six of the interview. And Roger Wheeler asks, Do you feel that Westerners are more suited to the Satipatthana practice than to the study of philosophical analysis? To which Lumpur Sumedha responds, Satipatthana is the whole point of the Buddha's teaching. One need not spend much time reading about it, I certainly don't feel it's necessary to study it, although it's quite all right to do so. I've nothing against that. Some people feel inclined towards scholarship and approach the practice in that way. However, I can only speak from my own experience. I felt that just the basic training was enough. The Four Noble Truths and the Satipatthana practice. I needed the Vinaya discipline and the Satipatthana practice in order to know the Buddha's teaching through experience rather than through theory. Otherwise, it's like reading maps all the time without going anywhere. And Roger responds, In Tibet, however, the practice seems to develop quite differently. There was much memorization of root texts and commentaries and debating on them. Lumpur responds, not having been born or lived in Tibet, I cannot very well speak for a Tibetan, but they obviously must have their reasons for their ways. I can only speak from my own experience, but to this day, the idea of spending years just studying the Dhamma, I wouldn't do it. I just would not! <laughs> Exclamation mark. <laughs> to me, it's like reading cookbooks without preparing any meals. And that's a, a, a frequent um, aspect of the teaching. Uh, and Lumpur Chah would, would uh, very, very regularly um, talk in this way because the, the majority of people involved in Buddhist practice, um, the, the main, uh, up until the probably the early 60s, certainly for the lay community, would have been studying uh, Buddhist texts, studying Pali language, um, and very few people meditating at all. So meditation for lay people in Thailand uh, it was almost unheard of until about the the late fifties. After the the first the sixth Sangha Council in in uh, in Rangoon in fifty six fifty seven, um, and then the um, various Thai monks who were there uh, were introduced to the Mahasi Yekta, the lay med med uh, meditation center that Mahasi Sayadaw had established in in, uh, in Rangoon, uh, Yangon. And uh, they they were quite inspired by that. So then they started up um, uh, various teaching situations in Bangkok, like in um, what uh, uh, what Mahatat section five, what Mahatat, which is where uh, Lumpur Sumato first learned meditation in Thailand, and uh, other centres in Thailand for, for for lay practice was started up. But even amongst the monastic community, the um, the the Sangha were generally uh, discouraged from meditating and uh, encouraged to learn Pali, learn Buddhist studies. And uh, and even today, the Buddhist education, I don't think it involves any kind of meditation practice. It's, it's all to do with Pali language, Buddhist history, um, Buddhist texts. And so that your various stages of, of, uh, of study um, they they don't require any kind of meditational experience. Uh, as far as I know, I can be corrected on that, um, but I'm pretty sure if you uh, have the the levels of study, you can do the whole thing without ever meditating at all. Um, which seems strange for us, but that that was the the landscape of of um, Buddhist practice. So what that meant was that people would coming uh, would be coming to Lumpur Cha very very frequently, both monastics and lay people, and. Uh, and uh, be, um, say, surprised at the lack of, of emphasis on study in Wat Bapong and in Ajahn Chah's uh, tra uh, tradition. 
and uh, so he uh, many 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 of his teachings if you read his dhamma talks or um, uh, uh, listen to those over and over again he's talking about the limitation of academic study and he'd use a, uh, the um, similes are like saying it's like being a, a ladle in a soup pot you're, you're you're immersed in the soup like you're but the the ladle can't taste the soup it can't be nourished by the soup um, or like when he was in England and somebody had asked him a very erudite sort of um, intellectual question about Buddha Dhamma and uh, he uh, politely responded that uh, she was like somebody who kept chickens and then ignored the eggs but kept all the chicken dung and uh, that uh, you know, you're, you're kind of missing the point of it is if you're looking at spending all this time looking after your chickens you know you should collect the eggs rather than just uh, collecting all the, the manure so it was a very, very common theme, and so uh, when when I first went to to Wat Nanachat, then um, the the basic standard was that apart from the Vinaya books, you were discouraged from reading anything for the first five years of your monastic life. Just like you say, you know, read your read your own mind. That's what that's what you need to read. And so the the library at Wat Nanachat was literally one one small cupboard. Maybe about twice the size of this table. That was that was the library at Wat Nanashat. <laughs> um, and so, uh, but that was because there was such a, like an overemphasis on the academic side and, a, and, a, and an underdeveloped appreciation for meditation. So Lumpocha and other forest ajans uh, like Ajahn Mahabur, Ajahn Tate, Ajahn... Um, Ajahn Fun and so forth, they, they discouraged the, the study side and, and emphasized the meditation side. In in countries like Myanmar, Burma, uh, then there's much more of a natural balance and so that alongside the the study they would have a program and, and uh, be a, a, a strong encouragement towards meditation. So there's, there's not so much of a, an either-or model in, in, the, in that country. But um, in Thailand it became quite divided because... Um, with the Sangha reforms at the beginning of the 20th century, late 19th century, early 20th century, there was an active discouragement uh, for the monastic community to engage in meditation. It was understood the only reason why you would meditate would be to develop um, magical powers or, or to perform black magic or, or do, to be doing divining rituals to do astrology. Um, and then it would probably make you crazy. And you know, lay people shouldn't uh, meditate. So when uh, Venerable Ajahn Man first started teaching in uh, the early part of the 20th century, he really had to go against quite a lot of a, a, a current of, of negative feelings uh, about, about meditation. So that still lingered on in Ajahn Chah's era in the uh, early 60s and 70s. And so that um, the, uh, uh, the kind of um, ignoring uh, or the putting aside of the of the academic side was quite conscious. When we came to the West, um, then and we still had that same principle. It's like you know, don't don't you know, don't read the books, just read your own mind, put the books aside. What started to become apparent was that in Thailand that kind of worked because people grew up with with Buddhist mythology, with the stories of the Buddha's life, with the the teachings were around, the, the, the words of the of the suttas and the essential teachings were around in everyday life and the in the pujas that people would have. In the West we didn't have that. So you get these situations where someone would come along to, to Chithurst and and uh, ask a question about uh, some aspect of, of the teaching, and uh, and then sometimes, uh, and then many of us would be hard stretched to to come up with an answer. They say, so so what are the? It's called the eightfold path. What are the what are what are the eight things of the eightfold path? And you go, um, right view, um, and then uh, it's, yeah. And if you got six out of the eight, you felt you, you know doing pretty well. Um, so anyway, cut a long story short, it became apparent that, uh, well, whereas putting all the books aside made sense in a, in a uh, context of a Buddhist country like Thailand, or, you know, largely Buddhist culture and country like Thailand, but in the West it would be a bit more sensible to be uh, somewhat more educated. So after a, f uh, a few years, uh, um, and then when Amaravati opened, then uh, Lumpur was quite supportive of the idea of having a library and, and developing the, 
the resources for for, for, for um, spiritual study because it's it, it was obvious it was a a bit of a um, uh, a lack within the community but it's never been anything that was made compulsory but uh, those who are inclined towards study or getting more familiar with the suttas as well as the vinya discipline then people were encouraged in that and then in 1986 um, we had Venerable Ananda Maitreya who was this wonderful elder Sri Lankan monk came and stayed with us and so he started teaching us Pali he tried to teach us Abhidhamma as well Probably not. Yes. Well, do, you, do you remember what year? Because I left Chidhurst in 83. You're not switched on. Mate. Yeah. Fairly early on, because Chris Woodfine used to drive him. And he used to drive him to Chidhurst. He would arrive about 8.30 in the evening and we'd have a poly class. Then we'd have another Pali class before breakfast. Then we'd have another Pali class after breakfast. And then he would go. He was determined to teach us Pali. <laughs> <laughs> and we got, we did, we did a lot, actually. The nuns were much the best. I mean, we, we used to go every time. I remember some of the monks found it very, very tedious. Very <laughs> trying. So he, he would come every week, and we'd have three classes in a row with um, and then, yes, he came a second time to Amarawati and yes. tried to teach us, well, Pali. We, we, we was more interested in Pali than Abhidhamma. Abhidhamma was a very, it started off with a low attendance and it went down virtually to, virtually zero. It was almost a disaster. Yes. <laughs> I think I was already, because I went to Harnham in the spring of 83. And so um, I don't remember any of those early morning Pali classes at, at Chidhurst. But anyway, um, so he was uh, he was uh, aghast at how ignorant we were of yeah. Pali, and and he would say, you know, as it says in the Dhammapada, then he'd like recite four or five verses in, in exquisitely perfect Pali, yeah, and then and then he'd start talking about it, and you realise, <laughs> which what was the theme? Could you could you translate that for us, Bhante? And. Uh, so he, but he was, as you said, very, very generous and um, worked really hard to try and educate us. And then he, through the classes he did for us here, he put together this book called Easy Steps to Pali, I think. And that uh, he would do the Pali classes with us and then he'd, he'd stay up into the, late into the night, up till midnight, um, writing up the classes and, and forming them into, into uh, structured lessons and, and then by the the end of the rains retreat, then he had the the manuscript for that uh, that uh, that book was was all put together. He uh, it was his seventieth vasa as a bhikkhu, and he had more he had more rains than all the rest of the the sangha put together. His his attendant was senior to Ajahn Sumedho. His upatak had, was was been uh, was a, like a mahatera, venerable <laughs> Ananda Murti. So anyway, he so he contributed very very greatly to our our, our knowledge, and um, so extremely appreciative of his his efforts, and so that. But Abhidhamma um, was a was a, a dead loss, and I think it was also because uh, in the way that our our teachers, either the you know like Ajahn Chah and um, Ajahn Sumedha, Ajahn Buddhadasa would frequently draw upon Sutta teachings and, and um, incidents from, from the life of the Buddha. The, the Abhidhamma has never really informed the practice, um, meditation practice very much in Thailand, apart from people who studied initially through the, the Burmese tradition. So you have a, a couple of, of meditation centers in Thailand that was sort of came through the uh, the line through like um, Lady Sayadaw or Mahasi Sayadaw and so then they would have more of an Abhidhamma connection but the ones were sort of homegrown in Thailand there was almost no reference to Abhidhamma teachings uh, at all and uh, uh, when Ajahn Buddhadasa was asked about this I, I wasn't there but I, I heard this recounted it might have been Lumpur Sumedha who told the story when someone asked, it, uh, asked Ajahn Buddhadasa why he never taught Abhidhamma he said Abhi Abhi means much, too much. 
that was that was the end of the subject. But, uh, so anyway, to continue. So then Roger Wheeler men- uh, comments, I mentioned to you about Lam Rim, a systematic outline of the Buddha's sutra teaching. It's a graduated series of meditations that is taught as a method for attaining liberation. By studying and integrating it into one's mind, habituating the teachings to one's thinking, investigating through critical analysis. Do you feel this, this approach can, can cut through mental distortions? Lumpur responds, I really cannot say. I just don't know about it. I've never tried it out. Then Roger goes on to say, I find the Lam Rim to be an excellent framework for the Satipatthana practice. Having taken a number of courses here during the past six months at at IMS, I find it's possible to do the sitting and walking practice, but I wonder if there is a deep understanding of what what one is doing and why one is doing it. A conceptual framework can give one a good basis for understanding what the practice is all about. The reflective meditations are also a good motivating force, helping one to understand the rarity and meaning of having taken a human form, its impermanent nature, and the sufferings of cyclic existence. So the... um, uh, the comment that he makes here, you know, I wonder if there is a deep understanding of what one is doing and why one is doing it. And he's sort of relating that particularly to the, to the sutra teachings out of the Tibetan tradition. And, uh, and also one of the things that's significant about Tibetan Buddhism is that uh, it's very, very rare to actually study the sutras. It's almost, in a strange way, like in Thailand, it was considered sort of inappropriate or out of place to meditate. It's one of those weird things in the Tibetan Buddhist world. And I've had conversations with numbers of people in the Tibetan tradition about this. It's almost considered that you're inflated or conceited to think that you can study the sutras and understand them, where you should be studying the commentaries and the interpretations of the great masters, like Arya Deva, Vasubandhu, or Ashwagosha, uh, Lama Tsongkhapa, and and, uh, and so on and so forth. Like, how can you assume that you understand this better than Lama Tsongkhapa or better than Ashwagosha or or Vasubandhu? You know, how how can you be so inflated to think that you can you can understand this on your own? And so, it's extremely rare for people studying Tibetan Buddhism to go to the original sutras. And uh, and uh, uh, I was having a conversation about this with uh, Wang Mo Dixi, who's um, the daughter of Tartang Tulku. Um, she's, uh, uh, she helps to run his, uh, one of his main centers in, in Berkeley, in California, but she also organizes these large Dharma events in, in Bodh Gaya, recitation of the Tipitaka. And they, they're a Tibetan group, but they sponsor this recitation of the Pali Tipitaka by, uh, by monastic uh, representatives from about 12 or 15 different countries. And they're slowly working their way through the whole Tipitaka uh, and with these huge events that they sponsor for three, three or 4,000 people every year in Bodh Gaya. Kind of amazing. And so I, I was asking her, you know, how come your dad and, and your organization how, how come they, they put so much effort into sponsoring the Pali Tipitaka when they're out of a Tibetan tradition? And it, in that conversation, it came, it came out that uh, her father is also really ardent in the, the, uh, in the promotion of studying the original sutras in the Tibetan tradition. And he too says it's, it's really crazy to have this wonderful uh, collection of teachings, but hardly anybody reads them. They're always going to the commentaries and the sub-commentaries and the sub-sub-commentaries. And that, um, so he's been trying to, she said he's been doing this for more than 40 years, trying to encourage people who are studying Tibetan Buddhism to go to the original sutras and, and read them and learn, learn from the, the original sources rather than just reading the interpretations. And so part of their promotion of Pali is also trying to make the, the, the Pali teachings available and, and bringing that into the center of attention to encourage that uh, uh, getting familiar with the original source material and using that as a, a spiritual guide so uh, I was uh, encouraged by that 
But uh, in, in the Thai forest tradition, rather than just referring to the, sut uh, the suttas um, and the, the vinaya, the, uh, and in, in terms of Roger's comment, I wonder if there's a deep understanding of what one's doing and why one is doing it. Most of that is coming through the oral instruction of the, the, the teacher or teachers in a particular monastery, that it's um, the kind of living experience of the practice as, uh, and put into the uh, local language or local expression or through someone that you can actually talk to, that that's where the, the deeper understanding and motivation for why one would practice is uh, very much informed by the, um, the, the kind of a presence and the, uh, the impact or the, the role of, a, of an individual teacher. Like the, so that the, the, the Ajahn in a monastery, it's kind of their job to help make the teachings available and, and real and, uh, and workable, uh, effective for the people who, who gather there. And so that the, 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 the suttas are there in the background, but the, the majority of the teaching is from that sort of direct uh, oral transmission. And so that, in the, particularly in the Gelugpa tradition, there's very much more of an emphasis on the, 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 the written teachings. And as he said, memorizing these, um, the, the root texts and commentaries that they're expected to, to learn. And so that, that, that becomes your acharya, is the, the, the texts that you're, you're memorizing so that you should know what Vasubandhu um, and, uh, and um, the... Uh, uh, the, the uh, Aryadeva and the array of, of great sort of masters of, of the past have said, because that, that's that's your acharya that you're you're referring to, and and so um, uh, I feel that is also something that he hadn't quite got a, a sense for of how um, how much a living presence that is in, in our in our tradition and in our way of practice. So then Lumpur responds. I agree. This type of study is very good. I cannot see why the two cannot go together. I cannot see myself just studying it without doing it. In Thailand, I've seen monks study and learn Pali for 40 years, not doing the actual practice, and then even disrobing. But that's their problem. The fact is that one does not need to know an awful lot. The teaching is so simple. That's why for many people, the practice is enough. Yet I also seriously doubt whether people understand the point of the walking and sitting practice. It's still rather spoon-feeding when people are dependent upon being told what to do and having everything arranged for them. When I read the suttas and the Abhidhamma now, I can understand them. I know what's being said. Before I practiced meditation, I read many of the texts, but just could not understand what they really meant. When one is practicing, one is actually taking the teachings of the Buddha and really looking at oneself. When one investigates the nature of suffering, one isn't taking someone else's definition, but is looking at the experience in oneself. The Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path and Dependent Origination all become very clear when one meditates upon them. I don't want to be quoted on any opinions because they are just that. I can only speak from my experience. Some people seem to be able to get great benefits from studying the Abhidhamma, but I have just no interest in the Abhidhamma as a subject that I would study. Then Roger says, In Tibet, the study of the Abhidhamma came last on the list. However, the process of debate, as a skillful means for sharpening the mind, two people confronting each other in a quick, concentrated exchange, is like taking a dull knife the mind, and sharpening it so that it can then be used as a sword to cut through ignorance. Presumably, many Tibetans have attained realization through using philosophical analysis as a tool to prepare their minds for meditation. The Gelug tradition, however, is often ridiculed by the other three sects of Tibetan Buddhism for its heavy emphasis on study. For those who are capable of pursuing such a system of learning, it seems quite valuable. So that, uh, um, that's very much a part of the Gelugpa tradition. They're known as the more academic and also the, 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 the most strict in terms of the Vinaya practice. They're the, also the most recent of the Tibetan traditions. So the, the oldest one is the, the Nyingma, which is the original um, Tibetan community in, uh, in that country from, uh, from the, the first transmission of the teaching in the, 
sort of the, um, I think, 5th, 6th, 7th century. And then Buddhism was suppressed for a number of centuries. And then the uh, the next two, uh, the Sakya and the Kagyu traditions, um, came into Tibet from um, from about the 10th or 11th century. They came in from from the Spiti Valley in, in northern India into Tibet. And then uh, two or three centuries later, in I think the 13th century, then uh, Lama Tsongkhapa was the one who founded the Gelug tradition as a sort of reform movement, um, uh, say, to, to sort of sharpen things up, uh, as uh, he perceived that there was a certain degree of of slackness or drift in the Tibetan practice of Buddhism. So they, uh, the Gelugs particularly uh, emphasize uh, academic study and uh, the, the learning of the scriptures. And so they have this process of debate where they sit face to face and kind of vigorously make philosophical points with each other. Uh, that uh, Probably many people have seen films of this. Uh, they have like a whole courtyard filled with with uh, the uh, monks and, and, and nuns as well, that they engaging in these debating practices. And they have a, their rosary in their hand and they're kind of pointing their fingers at each other as they as they make their make their points. And that, that's one of the ways they have their their um, academic exams is in debate. So you sort of sit down with your acharya and they'll ask you uh, ask you uh, questions that you then have to respond effectively to. So then Lumpur concludes by saying, in your life here at the Insight Meditation Society, you'll find your Tibetan tradition more meaningful and useful if you learn to use it and have more confidence in it. So don't be just blindly attached to the Satipatthana practice. You're already established in a tradition and trained in it. So when you've had enough of sitting and walking, dot, 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 seeming to say you can go back to your Tibetan practice as well. And that's the end of the that interview. So any final questions, comments? Yes. Uh, yes, I was um how that idea of um studying or not studying as part of one's practice. I find it interesting how there are like different character types amongst practitioners who some for whom the practice can be, or the, the study of the suttas can be absolutely essential, and without it, it would be a huge loss for the practice. And it's like the idea of saying, okay, for five years, don't read any any suttas at all and just meditate, um, would seem like sort of starving the practice immensely from a really rich uh, nutrient. How there are people like that, and then others for whom it's like not even this who doesn't provide anything it's just like hollow completely and um i don't know i've wondered sometimes what what it is is it the way in which one reads it or is it the, the personality type and um, my my sense is sometimes maybe it's the kind of intention one has behind the reading like if, if one is for example reading as an end in itself because one is just trying to memorize as much as possible or know all the suttas and uh, maybe know as many facts as possible, maybe then it becomes dull and kind of useless as well and doesn't really lead anywhere. But I think if one reads um, as really just as a means towards something else and combined with meditation as well, then it's quite different. But I wonder what you think about how sort of these different ways, how one reads the suttas and different people, how they relate to the suttas as well. Uh, I think there's a number of different factors. I think mostly I'd say it's a personality type. You know, that uh, just as you're describing, for some people it's uh, not to have an intellectual framework is like not having oxygen. It's like you can't, can't breathe. You know, this they... It's uh, that's that's the conditioning of their mind, and what they're what they're used to, and uh, it's uh, almost physically unbearable to to not have those kind of uh, you know, ideas and principles uh, around to to be nourished by, and uh, the other end of the spectrum, then the. There's somebody who's like your know, words. Why 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 all the words? You know, <laughs> what's that got to do with anything real? And uh, just can't uh, can't relate to that as being anything essential or important. Just just as you were saying, 
So I think a lot of it is personality type. Also the conditioning of what you found valuable in your life. Um, because you, know, the, you, you might um, feel that, oh, that everybody, everybody else around me is studying a lot, therefore I should. But then you, you put your, your mind onto it and you, you read the same paragraph five times over and just like nothing is going in. It's just, there's no connection with it. It's like, there's, there's nothing helpful. But whereas sitting meditating or um, sweeping the paths in the forest, um, yeah, helping to wash the dishes, then oh, this is the uh, this is this is the practice. This is alive. This is real. So it, it, uh, one of, one of the aspects of the uh, of a sapurisa, a well-rounded person, is atanyuta, knowing your own personality, knowing your own character, and seeing the things that that benefit you. So sometimes it, it can be helpful to, to sort of stretch yourself. Like, you know, it's not your, you're not really at ease with it. It's not really your, what you're particularly good at. But if you put effort into it, then it, it, you, know, you, can, you can grow. It can be, it can be a, a, something beneficial. Other areas, the, the, it just doesn't work. It just, it's a shoe that does not fit. And no matter how much you try and tweak it, it the shoe does not fit. <laughs> And so that getting to know, well, this isn't just me sort of stretching myself in a difficult area. This is just something that just doesn't work. And, uh, and so I think part of getting to know your own character is getting to know where, it, yes, this is a really good fit. This is really easy and I benefit a lot. Yeah, this is, this is not a good fit, but if I really work at it, yeah, there's some, there's some good that comes from it. And, there, and then this is not a good fit, and like this is just a lot of grief and disappointment, and this just doesn't work. And to get to know those different areas and to, to function accordingly, and to, to, uh, uh, to see where your strengths are, where your weaknesses are, and then to, to work with that. So you're you're not fighting against your own character, but you're learning to work with it, and uh, and there's a huge variety of um, uh, you know, within a, a monastery, any community, even where you've got a small community like five or six people, you still have a big a big spectrum of uh, different character types. You know, we, we vary a lot from each other, and so uh, uh, that. Getting to know your own conditioning, and then also the the conditioning of the people around you. That you know, so atanyuta is part of it, knowing yourself, and then also uh, parisanyuta, knowing the group that you're with. <laughs> the the uh, what are the the uh, what's the, the what are you participating in? What are the standards of the group? Pugalanyuta, knowing the personalities of other individual people. So that kind of being observant and 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 taking into account how things work. That's a, a lot of the development of, of the practice. And that, uh, so, uh, like, like uh, Venerable Ananda he had great respect for, for uh, Lumpo Sumato and thought he was a wonderful monk and was really, really impressed with the community he created. But he was sincerely amazed that we just didn't know Pali. And like, how could you just not feel deprived? It's like, I mean, he wasn't critical, he was just like, wow! Because it was so much a part of his life, and he could he could converse in Pali. He could have a, like a conversation in Pali. When when uh, Tong Palu Sayadaw came to visit Chithurst, Venerable Ananda Maitreya was there at the same time, and they were trying to just figure out who was the elder, who should bow to whom, and uh, they spoke to each other in Pali. He was Burmese and he was Sri Lankan. They didn't have a common language, so they, well, their common language is Pali. They worked out that uh, Venerable Ananda Maitreya, his Upasampada was at Visaka Puja, and then Tongpalu Sayadaw was a few months earlier. So Ananda Maitreya bowed to him. Yeah, that was one of the great moments. Again, each one of them had far more years in the monastic life than the rest of the, <laughs> the whole shithouse community put together. But, uh, it was kind of an extraordinary moment. So he was just, uh, so he, his effort to teach us Pali was, was, um, very generous, but for some people it's like, oh great, this is really interesting, and you know, like a, took to it like a duck to water, and was, it was really, 
there was an aptitude and an interest. Other people, it was just, you know, they could they could just about get to the the, the you know the fourth line of the Anamodana without having to look at the book. You know, it's, it's just not going in, Ajahn. <laughs> so uh, that, that's that's. Uh, but I think it's important to recognize that people vary and that just because somebody has an aptitude for intellectual life doesn't mean that they're any better or any worse um, and that it's just a different uh, inclination a different disposition and if it's used skillfully it can be a benefit if it's not used skillfully it can be a, an obstacle yeah I think it also changes. Um, I mean, I was totally, totally uninterested in the suttas or any scriptures when I first came to the community. And Frida Wint wanted to teach us. She wanted to get us interested. And I, I just couldn't. I just couldn't. But then some years later, after having practiced for a while, it was really exciting to see that this was exactly what the Buddha was saying. <laughs> and, and gosh, he put it so well. <laughs> having been practicing for a number of years. So I think it can change. It does, yes. And, uh, yeah. I also remember Sister Rojana was similarly aghast at how uh, uh, Ajahn Sumedho would very, very... He never quotes the suttas. You know, she would be quite, quite uh, upset that uh, there was a... Because she was uh, from um, more of a, a sutta-based background, but... Uh, but yeah, she had great faith, so she, she stayed with it, as we know. But um, I remember her making a few comments, like, why doesn't he ever quote the suttas? These Dhamma talks are all very well, but, you know, he, <laughs> he should quote the suttas more often. But uh, it does change a lot. So, yeah, I, uh, I noticed how, if I, if I look at Dhamma talks that I gave back in the, like, early 90s, I hardly ever quote any, any suttas. And now I do a lot. And that's a lot because of living with Ajahn Pasno, because he is much more knowledgeable of the suttas than I was. So living with him, he would regularly be quoting suttas, or he'd say, well, look at this, or did you know that? And I go, oh, wow. And so living with him, and collaborating with him, that changed the whole way that I related to it. So, so now I'm kind of surprised. I keep quoting suttas in these Dhamma talks. You know, it's, not, it's not a deliberate thing, but it just uh, changes organically. And speaking of organic changes, it's now gone past seven o'clock again, so we'll finish there. <laughs>